Well, good morning, everyone. My wife and I, we normally are, come to first service, so uh, the times I get to come and share with you in the 11 o'clock service, this, this is kind of special to me. Although, frankly, I don't know a lot of you, but we can change that. That's why we have these, all right? So anyway, it's so good to see you here in church. We are going to be taking a look at Romans chapter 6 this morning. So uh, please go to Romans chapter 6 in your Bibles, although we are going to have scriptures up on the screens. I always encourage people to use your Bibles as well, whether you have it as an app in your phone or you actually have a printed copy. But what we're going to be learning about today is defeating sin. Defeating sin. That's our topic in Romans chapter 6. But before we start talking about Romans chapter 6, let's go ahead and let's review just a little bit of the messages that we have heard so far over the last few weeks on the underestimation of sin. Several weeks ago, we learned about knowing our enemy, which is sin. We learned about defining, describing, and defeating sin. Next, the following week, we learned about the path of sin, looking specifically at the example, sad example, of David and his sin involving Bathsheba as well as Uriah, Bathsheba's husband, and the nation of Israel. Then last week, Pastor Daniel shared with us what he called the agony of sin, just how costly it is, but also he shared with us about what is real repentance. And that involved looking very carefully at Psalm 51. Now, this morning, we're going to return to that topic, defeating sin, and we're going to look at this very, very carefully, focusing on what Paul is telling us in Romans chapter 6. The key here, guys, quite frankly, is our identity in Christ, because that is what Paul is discussing in the sixth chapter of Romans. What does it mean? What exactly did God accomplish when we came to know Jesus as our Lord and Savior? Well, a lot of things were accomplished. It was incredibly rich as far as what took place at that moment when we were converted and we came to Jesus. Now, the outline for Romans chapter 6 is simply this, so you kind of know where we're going. First of all, we're going to be remembering our identity in Christ. That is verses 1 to 10, and by identity, we're talking specifically about mindset. What are some key facts that is true about us according to those first 10 verses in Romans chapter 6 involving and specifically remembering what Jesus did for us when we came into the knowledge of Christ? Then, point number two, we're going to be acting on our identity in Christ, and that's verses 11 through 14. Simply knowing is not enough, all right? We have to take action upon that knowledge, just like knowing the speed limit, wherever it happens to be, is such and such, and we still go 30 miles over the speed limit. Somehow our knowledge and our actions are not exactly lining up, are they? So we have to act upon that knowledge, the knowledge of what it means to have our identity in Christ. And then third, and this is in the last verses of Romans chapter 6, verses 15 to 23, keeping allegiance to Christ. In other words, staying where we need to stay in order to continue to experience 
victory in our walk with the Lord and continue to defeat sin. And to develop that, Paul is going to use an illustration that the Roman Christians would have understood, and that is slavery. All right? So we're going to take a look at that. That is going to be our last part of Romans chapter 6. Now, before we go into this chapter, I want to introduce to you some movie stars. Here they are. This is from a movie made a long time ago by the Disney company called The Ugly Dachshund. The problem with the characters in this movie, these four or five dogs, is the big one in the back, Brutus. Brutus was convinced through most of the film that contrary to his appearance, which he certainly looks like a Great Dane, Brutus would have said, if he could have talked, he would have said, no, I'm a dachshund. And watching a Great Dane trying to act like a dachshund was pretty funny. Brutus's problem was a lack of knowledge, very, very inaccurate knowledge. It's the same principle when it comes to us with defeating sin. We have to have accurate knowledge of who we are in Christ and then live out that knowledge. God may want us to be like Great Danes, but if we don't act upon that knowledge, we act like wiener dogs. And we're not wiener dogs, all right? If I had to summarize this whole message in a phrase, it'd be simply this. The key concept of Romans chapter 6, living who we are in Christ equals defeating sin. If you don't remember anything else that I'm going to share with you this morning, please remember that, because that's what it's all about. All right. Let's go ahead and take a look, first of all then, at knowing our identity in Christ. And I'm going to go ahead and read verses 1 to 10 of Romans chapter 6, and I invite you to read with me. Here we go. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who die to sin still live in it? Do you not know? that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism unto death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his." We know that our old self was crucified in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. All right. Verses 1 and 2. If you actually pick up the context here, the last few verses of the previous chapter, Romans chapter 5, Paul had made the point that although sin is bad, he said God's grace is far greater than sin. 
So sometimes people then make the mistake, it happens today just like it happened in Paul's day, to think, well, if grace is greater than sin, therefore I must be able to sin and do whatever I want and God is going to forgive me. Wrong. That's why Paul says very, very strongly, by no means. In other words, forget it. The idea that somehow we can come to Christ and then sin with impunity, there's a fancy word for that. It's called antinomianism. It's a heresy. Anti, of course, means against. Namos is the Greek word for law. So somebody who's antinomian is living a lifestyle that is totally contrary to God's law. And as we learned several weeks ago, according to 1 John chapter 3, verse 4, Sin is lawlessness. It's living a lifestyle totally opposed to what God expects. So Paul heads us off here at the beginning of this chapter saying, no, if we come to God and we truly know Christ, we cannot sin with impunity. As a matter of fact, he says, we're dead to sin. We need to live according to that knowledge. So notice in verse 3, And then in my Bible, I also underlined this in verse 6, and again in verse 9, Paul says, we know, we know, we know. In other words, he's reminding us of certain facts we should know, and we need to remember based upon our identity in Christ. Again, it's a mindset, all right, that we have to keep before us. The first we know is based upon verses 3 to 5, and he's reminding us, just taking a look at this, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? And then later on he says, if we were baptized into death, we also, just as Christ rose from the dead, we also experience newness of life. That newness of life begins now, but we will experience it even more so in eternity. So, when we were baptized, and by the way, in the New Testament, almost always, as soon as somebody came to the Lord, they were baptized. That's how they did it. So, for example, at the day of Pentecost, where Peter preaches that wonderful sermon under the filling of the Spirit, and 3,000 people come to the Lord, and you get to the end of that sermon... And it says there, after Peter had just told them that they have crucified their own Messiah, the people were cut to their hearts, which is what real preaching does. It cuts to our hearts. It gets kind of uncomfortable. But that's what God's word should do. They say, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter immediately says, repent and be baptized. Baptism doesn't save us, it never has, it never will, but baptism is simply the outward sign of that inward reality that we have entered into Christ. Now, if you notice, whether you've been baptized here at Resurrection Church or some other church, when we baptize you, we don't hold you under too long, do we? Aren't you thankful for that? You know? I know one particular church denomination, they do it three times. Boom, boom, boom. I guess they want to make sure. But the point is that just as we were dunked under the water in baptism and then were raised up, so also we were, when we came to Christ, we were buried 
and then we rose up in our new life, spiritually speaking, baptism simply symbolizes what Jesus did for us. So that's the first fact. Remember what he did for us when we got saved, which was symbolized in our baptism. Baptism, again, it's usually right after conversion. Baptism symbolizes a new life. It symbolizes the fact that Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father. By the way, glory there means power. When Lazarus was in the grave, you remember the story in John chapter 11, and Jesus tells them, move the stone away. And Martha, Lazarus' sister, being a woman of faith, says, no, he's been dead four days. He stinks. Jesus then says, did I not tell you you would see the glory of God? Glory meaning power. Move the stone so the guy can get out. Jesus died, was crucified, was buried, but then he was raised to life by God's glory, by God's power. And if we are walking in Christ, we experience that resurrection power now, but we will experience it even more when we are united with Jesus. We experience a new life now. If anyone is in Christ He or she is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things are new. We'll experience an even greater resurrected life later. And Paul tells us about that in 1 Corinthians 15, 51 and 52. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. Those words need to be in every church nursery. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. First fact, our baptism symbolizes the fact we have a new life in Christ. We're dead to the old, we now live for the Lord. Second fact, verses six to eight. We know that our old self or our old man was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For the one who has died has been set free from sin. Now that we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. Second fact, our old self, this old part of us, that sadly we still are encumbered by, that has that old sin nature, guess what? It was brought to nothing. The Greek word there, you can also translate it, rendered powerless, nullified, paralyzed, is the idea. We are not sin's slave anymore. And if you believe you're a slave to sin, you bought into a shell game. It's not true. You now belong to Jesus. Here's what Paul wrote, Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ, meaning his old self. It's gone. 
And I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Sometime take a look at Ephesians chapter 4, verses 17 to 24, where Paul there is telling the Ephesian Christians and other Christians, we have a whole new identity. We no longer live according to this old man. We live according to this new man. And he very carefully explains the difference between those two. Notice as well, Paul writes here in this section, we have been set free. It's interesting It's actually the word elsewhere in our Bibles translated justification. We have been justified. It's like, well, that's kind of a different use of that word. We think of justification. That has to do with the fact that God's no longer going to hold our sins against us because of what Jesus did, and that's true. But justify can also be translated acquitted, declared innocent. When we came to Jesus and took his righteousness upon us, and he took our sins, we were acquitted. We were declared innocent. We were set free at that point. He who the Son sets free is what? You got it. Third fact, verses 9 and 10. Jesus' absolute, conclusive victory over both sin and death. Take a look at verses 9 and 10. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. He was victorious over sin because he was victorious. We walking by his power, his strength, our new identity in him, we can be victorious too. I love the way Paul puts this in Colossians. Now, this is Colossians 2, verses 13 and 15, and I'm using here the New Living Translation because I think it really captures very well what happened at the cross. So here we go. You were dead because of your sins and because of your sinful nature was not yet cut away. Then God made you alive in Christ for he forgave all our sins. He canceled the record of charges against us and took it away by nailing it to the cross. In this way, he disarmed the spiritual rulers and authorities. He shamed them publicly by his victory over them on the cross. What looked like to the outside world It looked like when Jesus was crucified, he lost. That was actually, though, his victory. He made the cross a throne of victory, a throne of grace. And that's what Paul is recalling here. Notice it says record of wrong. Some of our Bibles had certificate of debt. If you remember, when Jesus was crucified, you remember the sign they put on his cross? This is Jesus, the king of the Jews. And Pilate would not take that sign down. It was a way for him to get back at the Jewish religious leaders who had helped push him to crucify Jesus. That was the charge against Jesus. Of course, the charge was true, wasn't it? He was the king of the Jews. He is the king of the world. He is the king of the universe. 
The point is, is just like there was that sign on his cross, so also our sins were nailed to that cross. And when he died, he paid the penalty for those sins. And when he rose, we experience his victory. Now again, this is all a mindset. He's telling us things, and it's just like he's telling the Roman Christian, things that we need to keep in mind, things that we need to believe, because get this, guys, if we don't believe this, we will never have the victory over sin. We have to change our thinking. No matter how many times we may have screwed up and messed up with that one particular sin, whatever it is, you can have victory over that through Jesus, but you gotta change your thinking. It's a mindset. We have to think according to what Scripture says, not according to the tape player we hear in our own heads. Okay. Not only do we have to have a change of thinking, we have to act upon a new identity, our identity in Christ, and that's verses 11 through 14. So let's take a look at that. It's beginning at verse 11. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as an instrument for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members as instruments of righteousness, your members to God as instruments of righteousness. For sin will, no, will have no dominion over you since you're not under law, but under grace. Okay, two key ideas here we have to catch when it comes upon acting on our identity in Christ. First idea, verse 11. Consider yourselves. You can also translate that, reckon yourselves. It's interesting, the Greek language, Paul is writing this as a command, it's an imperative, but it's also in what's called the present tense. In other words, this is something we do and we have to keep on doing, all right? It's the same word used by Paul when he talks about Abraham back in Romans chapter four, verse three, where Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. It's the same word translated here, consider. In other words, Abraham made a choice. Abraham made a choice to simply believe that what God said was true, and according to Genesis 15, 6, it was credited to him as righteousness, and Abraham entered into a life of faith, walking with the Lord. He made the choice. Bringing that over here, we have to make a choice to consider ourselves what? Dead to sin, alive to God in Christ. And we have to keep on making that choice. It has to happen. But something else has to happen. Look at verse 13. Do not present your members to sin as instruments of righteousness, but present yourself to God. Now, coming back to that Greek language, 
Again, this is a command, present yourself to God, but this time, it's a one-time decision. It's a one-time choice. We have to make this choice, and we have to mean it. Present ourselves to God. Sounds like an offering, doesn't it? And it should remind us of a verse where Paul writes later in what we call Romans chapter 12, verse 1, where Paul writes this, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. That's a choice, isn't it? It's a one-time decision. Holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Now, in Romans chapter 12, Paul had been building on all this information, basically Romans chapter 1 through chapter 8, and then he kind of goes on a little excursus in chapters 9 through 11. But then he comes back here, and he says, look, I've told you guys all this stuff about your salvation. Therefore, now, you have to make a choice. You have to present yourselves to God as a living sacrifice. Here he's telling us we got to make the same choice. In other words, we have to be stubborn. Remember playing tug of war with a dog? Grab that dog's favorite chew toy, and the dog is <clears throat> as he or she's holding onto the toy, and you're <clears throat> and you're pulling the toy. If the dog is at all likes to play pull games like that, does the dog immediately let go? Like, yeah, okay, I give up. No. They dig themselves in like they're some kind of fighting machine and they are resisting. They made a choice, a determined choice. That's what we have to do. We choose God by your strength, by your ability, not because I have anything, because I don't, but I'm going to choose to trust you and I'm going to take a stand. That's what he's telling us here. Now, Point number three, we have to be keeping our allegiance, let me try this again, keeping our allegiance to our identity in Christ. It's not enough that we change our mindset. It's not enough that we have now taken action. We got to stay on the right track. And that's what he begins to develop here in verses 15 through 23. So let's take a look at that. What then? Are we to sin because we're not under law but under grace? Notice verse 15 and verse 1 are kind of like the same. Again, he's heading off the idea that somehow somebody can just come to Jesus and say, okay, now that I know Jesus, I can just do whatever I want. And again, Paul says, no, you can't. No real Christian can share the wonderful grace of God as an excuse to get away with their sin. It doesn't work. It never has and it never will. Keep going. Verse 16. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one to whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? But thanks be to God that though you were once slaves of sin, have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed, and having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. 
I am speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented yourselves, your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed. For the end of those things is death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit, that you, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, Paul, and he kind of apologizes a little bit, because he, but he doesn't know how else to try to explain to these Roman Christians in a way that they would understand what it means to keep their allegiance to Jesus. So he uses this idea of slavery. And the reason why, guys, he uses that is because scholars estimate that about 70% or so of the Christians in all these little house churches throughout Rome, about 70% of them were slaves, or had been slaves, which they call freedmen. Now, their slavery was not the same as the slavery we studied about in U.S. history, but it was still bad. Slavery is slavery. But Paul's point, using something that they would have understand, in verses 15 to 20 is simply this. There's no middle ground. On the one hand, there's sin. Sin leads to this outcome, death. On the other hand, there's serving God. Serving God leads to this outcome, eternal life. We're either in one camp or we're in the other. There's no middle ground. During World War I, we've all seen this in the movies or read about it. You know, they had something called no man's land. You had... One side would be whoever was fighting on that side of the trenches. The other side would be whoever was fighting on that side of the trenches. And the area in the middle, whether it was just a couple hundred yards or a mile or so, was no man's land. And the point was, if you ended up in no man's land for any length of time, you'd be dead. There was no middle ground. You were either in this side or you're in the other side. You couldn't fit in the middle. That's the idea here. Either we are obediently serving God or we are serving sin. We are a slave to sin. The idea that people think, oh, I have a free will, I can do whatever I want. No, you can't. It's either one way or it's the other. And then in verses 20 to 23, Paul presents there two very, very different outcomes depending on who we give our allegiance to. If we are serving the Lord as his servant, it leads to, first of all, sanctification. Notice he used that word a couple of times there in those last few verses. Sanctification simply means being set apart, being dedicated to God, being made holy. It's the Greek word hagios. It's a very common word used in the Bible. It means that we become more and more and more like Jesus. People start to look at us and realize there's something different about that guy that lady. And the difference is, is that Jesus is remolding us and remaking us into his likeness. 
through the work of his Holy Spirit. So we grow in sanctification. We grow in what Paul says, spiritual fruit. And that immediately makes us think about the fruit of the Spirit, the fruit that comes about in our lives as we yield, live our lives yielded to the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, self-control, and all the rest of them. That Paul says there's no law against any of that thing. And the kicker, the greatest blessing, is eternal life. On the other hand, serving sin, he says, it brings shame And we can all think of things that we have done in our past that we don't want anyone to know that we did that or we thought that. Why? Because we're ashamed of it for good reason. Sin brings shame. It pays lousy wages that ultimately results in death. Spiritual death eternally, forever, separated from God. Who someone gives their allegiance to, whether Christ and our identity in him or sin and its outcome, spiritual death, it has a permanent result. And that's what Paul is telling us here. What we choose has consequences for all of eternity. The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. All right, some takeaways from this message, three of them actually. Number one, remember, we're looking at how to defeat sin. So number one, if sin is defeating you, make a definite choice to live Romans six thirteen. Look at it again. Present yourselves to God. Take a stand. Trust the Lord. He'll give you the power and the strength through Christ to make that stand stick. Number two, if sin is defeating you, keep making choices to live out Romans 6.11. There it says, consider yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. In other words, when the temptation comes, stand on that truth. When it comes again, stand on that truth. Keep making the right choice. And third, if you're someone who doesn't know Jesus at all, you don't have a chance. You can't do anything about sin on your own. You've tried, you can't. If you want to be forgiven of your sins, come and accept Jesus as your Savior and Lord. He's the only one who can give you deliverance. And he paid it all. You don't have to do a thing except accept him, ask his forgiveness, let him into your heart, into your life as your Savior and Lord. All right, we're going to have now a time of response. Jim?